If you could put Star Wars into a genre-defining box, which would you choose? Fairy tale, Western, space opera, pure sci-fi, fantasy? Star Wars is all of these things and none of these things. We're going to break down our favorite three in this episode. Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to this week's episode where we are talking all about the theme of genre in Star Wars. It's not really a theme if it's a concept. (laughs) Okay, well, that was the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, may the force be with with you. you. Also, if if some of you don't listen all the way to the end, that's how we sign off. (laughs) That's how every Star Wars podcast signs off. Yeah, but specifically us, we go, I sign off first and then you sign off Mm because you open the show and then you close the show too it's like a balance it really is a balance (laughs) so that's what this show is about but before we get started on that we have some super exciting news that we sky talkers are going to be at d23 next week (laughs) so excited (laughs) we are so excited it's just i'm laughing because it really is a spur of the moment decision <laughs> made by us and i'm just really excited to go it's going to be fantastic and we're excited to if you guys aren't going we're excited to bring you along we'll be posting podcasts when we're there we're doing a lot of exciting things we can't wait to share with you mm-hmm. and if you are there please come up and say hi because we love that and we love to meet all of you guys Yes, we will have the pins that we had at Star Wars Celebration will be there. So if you missed out on those, want some more, want to send them to a loved one, just come find us. (laughs) Yes. And it's our first D23. I just have to say, I had a little bit of anxiety about whether it's D23, D23 before this episode. Charlotte has so much anxiety. (laughs) I had to look it up. I don't know. D. How do you guys say it? <laughs> okay, no. I just listened no, no, to a no, clip no. of Bob Iger say D twenty three. So now it's D twenty three. Okay, but what you're forgetting to say here is it's not like how do you say it. The correct way to say it is D twenty three because the twenty three is for nineteen twenty three, which is when Walt Disney founded the company Walt Disney, and so. It's 20. No one says nineteen two three. It's nineteen twenty three. And if you're saying D two three. I hate to break it to you, but it's wrong. <laughs> I mean, there's no wrong way to say two numbers, you know? Okay, but I think in this instance, <laughs> there is because it's it's not two separate numbers, two and three. It's one number, 23. It's a singular unit made up of two numbers. Yeah, I think I think where I tripped up and <laughs> is that D two three kind of like they're they're all one syllable rather than D twenty three. You know, it all kind of flowed together, and now I just have to say D twenty three and move you just past have that because that's the correct way to say it. <laughs> I feel like this whole conversation is just like a, a microcosm of how our brains work and why oh, yeah. is the way it is. <laughs> exactly. Twenty three is made up of two separate numbers. Something that's really exciting, though, about I'm like breezing past this embarrassing moment. (laughs) Go on. What's really exciting is that 
while I have been to Galaxy's Edge, I went for my birthday before, and now Caitlin gets to go, and we get to go together, and I'm just really excited about that. We're going to go to Disneyland. Caitlin's never been to Disneyland, and we're going to show her the light. It's going to be great. So excited. (laughs) I'm very excited. um, As you all know, Charlotte and I grew up in Georgia, so Walt Disney World was our place. Um, We went frequently growing up because we were so close to it, and um, our families took us a lot growing up. And you and I have a lot of memories together in Walt Disney World, you know, through weekends and just going. So it's going to be a new adventure, something to cross off of our friendship bucket list to be in Disneyland together and also to be in Galaxy's Edge. Like, I don't really think I've accepted that that's going to happen. I know. I know. Um, That I'm going to be in Batu. (laughs) Are you going to like blue milk or green milk better? I haven't even talked to the podcast about my experience in Galaxy's <laughs> Edge. And I feel like you. this is – there was a reason for that because like I I feel like that this is like the universe's way of saying that, oh, we need to go together before we can talk about that in my in my opinion. Aw, you know? that's cute of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> it is. But what, what do you think you're going to like better, blue milk or green milk? I don't know. Honestly, I'm really excited to get the little detonator bomb Coca-Cola. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm really excited about. I'm a big Coke fan. Coke Zero is my drink of choice most days. So I'm really excited to get one of those puppies. But I mean, I gotta go with green milk. Green's like my favorite both. color. I don't know. We'll try both of them. So yeah that's fine the one thing I'm just I'm jealous that Disney World you can put rum in it. You can't do it in Disneyland, but oh. I know that's something to try when next time we go to Disney World. Should we bring the flask? We probably can't do that. We'll be kicked out of the park. <laughs> so no, so no, it's not like Dragon Con. It's not. Disneyland is not like Dragon Con. <laughs> so yeah, after D twenty three, the following weekend we will be at Dragon Con in Atlanta. So. If we're alive. (laughs) Yeah, if we're alive. So if you're hoping to meet us on the Monday of Labor Day, we will not be alive after two weekends of conning. So don't try and find us then. You won't like us probably, but (laughs) (laughs) we're going – it's going to be – I'm really excited for the next two weeks. I'm excited to see you a lot. When is the last time? April, right? That was the last time we saw each other? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's weird. Was it really? That feels so long ago. Miss you. Oh, that's so weird. It's just because I feel like we do the podcast basically every week. It doesn't really feel like that long. Yeah. You don't miss me though? I said I miss you. I miss you too. Okay. But I just it just doesn't feel like that long. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like that long. But it has been a long time since we've seen each other. So mm-hmm. that's looking forward to that too. Mm-hmm. So anyway, if you're gonna be at any of those events, please come and find us and say hello. Uh, we have no tips or tricks for D23 because we've never been. So look forward we've to We've also whatever. never been to the Anaheim Convention Center, so we're going to scope it out for next year. We're going to continue to canvas the Anaheim Convention Center, <laughs> Center. for a celebration next year. So yeah, uh, look forward to whatever many faux pas I'm sure we will commit for, for D23, and we'll be sure to report back on them here. <laughs> Oh, no. I can't believe you just said that. What are we going to get into in this convention? We had such a smooth sailing trip in Chicago. I know. Chicago was too easy. So I don't know what that means for D23, but I do know you and usually you have like a solid 12 months to prepare for a convention before we go. And the fact that we have 
10 days <laughs> before this one. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be great. It'll be great. It's going to be I'm amazing. Really I'm really excited, excited to really flex yeah. your go with the flow muscles. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be mm-hmm. a real growing experience. <laughs> yes. Thank you. This will be my character growth, my character arc. Maybe your, darker, your darker middle darker chapter. Middle chapter. You, just, you never know. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> Charlotte's darker middle chapter is D23. <laughs> amazing. Yes. Okay. All right, so this has been the longest intro ever, but we did have those things to catch up on, some semantics to go over as far as 2-3 versus 23, what is a number, Uh, but we are talking all about genre, and Charlotte actually came up with this idea for this episode. Um, It's actually something that has come up. We thought of this idea like a couple weeks ago, and it's something that's kind of come around on Twitter the past couple days, which is always interesting when that happens, but... Charlotte, what made you think that genre would be a good topic to discuss on the show? Well, I think it comes up so often. Like, it comes up in conversations about what Star Wars is. And I think it's it's even, like, almost a personal thing about what you think Star Wars is. What I, I don't know. I think that, to me, the whole concept of genre is interesting because I think we live in a time where it's less important. And I think that you hear often... Uh, that genre is dead, that, you know, you shouldn't put some film or book or music or anything into a box and label it pop music and label it a scary movie because it's sometimes so much more. A scary movie is actually a good example where horror isn't necessarily all horror. Like, I don't, it's not all blood and guts sometimes, you know, it's sometimes more of political commentary and it, it just labeling something, something doesn't necessarily mean I don't know. I just feel like it, you you we're living in a time where you can grow beyond labels. Mm-hmm. And I think Star Wars is one of the craziest examples of that because I don't think it necessarily falls into one thing. It's more of an amalgamation of so many different things and it's something that we talk about on the show a lot. And but it, never before on the show have we kind of dissected exactly what I don't know, the favorite uh analyses of these genres are. Um, and I was hoping to do that here. And it was basically because I think often Star Wars gets lumped into sci-fi. And even recently, I watched that James Cameron. I've mentioned this before on the show. The James Cameron came out with, like I think, a six or seven part docu-series on sci-fi. And it was really great. And I was, you know, I, I went into it expecting Star Wars to be included. And I thought that was actually kind of interesting on my part because I don't necessarily think Star Wars is a sci-fi movie. But often because it's set in space and there's lasers and special effects, it gets put into that box. And when you talk about it, when James Cameron discusses it and when it's in this documentary series, you're like, yes, it is sci-fi. It's more than just sci-fi. And I think that's kind of what the series was trying to say. But um, I don't know. My mind kind of goes through a couple of hoops when I try to put Star Wars into a box. I don't know about you. Um, and George Lucas has always said that Star Wars has been, is a space opera, not sci-fi. He's always been very adamant that it's not sci-fi. Yeah, I think George also, he, space opera I feel like is what he refers to Star Wars most as. But the other 
genres I guess he he gives Star Wars I feel like that I see the most is fairy tale and fantasy mm-hmm. um, or, or western you know mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he's always talking about it like you said as this collection of genres in one thing but space opera is the one that he goes back to the most and I like how you're talking about how how genre maybe genre is dead but at the same time it's kind of not but these things like films that are coming out now they are so much more complicated and so layered but as with most things that's because they're built on what has come before and Mm -hmm. before there were pretty set not guidelines but like in a way check boxes for okay this is what makes a romance this is what makes a horror film this is what makes a comedy and they you could put them in very strict categories. And now you can't do that anymore. But the fun thing I think now because of that is that you can go through and kind of parse through all these layers to see, okay, these are the elements of romance that are in this type of film. And here's how romance kind of intersects with horror on this in this kind of setting. Or here's how comedy and political commentary, here's how they come together in this type of film or this kind of medium. Um, and it just, it invites you to analyze the, the content more I think. And I think Star Wars is, of course, the best thing to do that with. <laughs> yeah, we did this, you know, with our Halloween episode last year. Yeah, we did an episode on monsters and we talked a lot about horror and kind of gothic elements in Star Wars. And um, I think that that's something that obviously we filled two hours talking about. And I think I could even do a follow up episode on that and probably I don't know. I think that we could do way more on it. And I think that it's just so great to be able to analyze things through different lenses. Mm -hmm. And that's the benefit of looking at something through genre. Yeah. Yeah. But I do I do kind of subscribe personally to the idea that nothing should fit into a complete box. And that would make kind of a boring story, in my opinion. Mm hmm. So <laughs> at least a modern story. I don't think that we should be creating things that f- – I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. I I guess I maybe I want to push back on that a little bit mm-hmm. because I think that if you're kind of within a set genre, in a way you can almost have more creativity with it because like for example, so I've really been watching a lot of K-dramas recently, like Korean dramas. And they're all pretty much like, we are a romance. Like, that is what we are. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And they're unabashedly a romance. And they check all of the boxes of like, this is what a romance is. But because they're kind of – and I don't want to say like strict guidelines because obviously it's not completely like a a strict checkbox. But because they're kind of working in this framework as a romance and a pretty like obvious romance, sometimes I feel like they can take storylines and like – plot development in very unique ways that I don't know if it was kind of, like I don't know if that makes sense but there's almost like another type of creativity that comes from mm-hmm. being in a box um where you're still having to hit similar beats that you would in like a traditional romance but you can do it in creative ways and you can kind of experiment more with different storylines and character and plot developments that I don't necessarily think we always see in other types of TV shows and things like that. Um, but I see I see what you're saying, though. And, and I haven't watched a lot of, like, Korean movies. So – and I feel like right now we're kind of talking more about film. Um, so I can't really compare the two. But I will say that, like, with Korean TV shows that I've watched, I feel like they can be really creative with the storyline and plot lines because they're working within this mm-hmm. – 
kind of known structure of a romance and it can kind of go crazy places with it that I don't necessarily see in American TV shows. Yeah, I think that I agree with what you say, just because I'm now thinking about everything that Guillermo del Toro has said about his movies and his films, which always kind of fall into uh, sometimes a gothic horror type situation. And in his Oscar acceptance speech, he kind of basically reflected on what you were reflecting on about how um, genre stories first need to be taken more seriously because they do they are able to push the boundaries of something that we're so familiar with. Mm-hmm. I'm, now I'm not so sure what side I fall down on. I do, I guess what I'm saying is I don't subscribe to the notion that something needs to be one thing. Yeah, I think that's it. It's like something doesn't have to to be just one thing like when you look at tv shows like in korea for example they're like they make most of their tv shows are one season and so they're making so many more than what is made in american tv for example and so they have that in a way it's like for business purposes like it's easy to have this set structure of like okay this is what a romance tv show is going to look like these are the beats you're going to hit but now you can do whatever you want and it's kind of like time and money efficient that way whereas Mm -hmm. like for films and stuff then it's different like it doesn't have to fit into a set box and it can be all of these different layers and things like that but when something is being created in kind of a different environment sometimes having that structure can then lead to a whole different kind of creativity and Mm -hmm. so it's like what you're saying like it can be both it doesn't have to be one or the other and like that quote you're talking about from Guillermo del Toro genre should be like genre shouldn't be looked down on just Mm -hmm. because it's genre just like something that isn't really that you can't really define that shouldn't be looked down on either because they're all pulling in different influences even if one is more strictly a horror and one is you know a dramedy or whatever it is you know Mm -hmm. absolutely I think what we're going to do in this episode today, though, is kind of go through them and kind of test this theory about, you know, Star Wars is a blank in terms of genre. And we'll get to that in a second. But before we do, I wanted to read this quote from Daisy Ridley in USA Today that was, uh, I'm not sure when this was. I think it was back in April or when she was, or June when she was promoting Ophelia. Um, Do you want to read the quote, Caitlin? You're much better at reading. Mm Mm-hmm. So the question from the interviewer was, The Force Awakens was a familiar, fun reintroduction to the Star Wars universe, while The Last Jedi was a darker, riskier installment. How does The Rise of Skywalker compare? And Daisy's answer was, quote, Genre-wise, it's different from the other two, which will become clear when the film comes out. It's quite emotional. There's a different drive than the previous two films, but there's a lot of fun. I really miss John Boyega during the last one, but we're back together, and now Oscar Isaac is a part of it. To me, it felt like kids going on an adventure, end quote. So interesting because the the first two lines are obviously the most interesting to me. Genre-wise, it's very different from the other two, which will become clear when the film comes out. It's quite emotional. There's a different drive than the previous two films, but there's a lot of fun. I cannot wait to dig into this as we go through each of these genres because I think it's so fascinating. I'm like, <laughs> what does she classify the other two in terms of genre mm-hmm. if that makes sense yeah yeah what are what is she basing her description off of yeah that's what to I me wanted. i'm like i think that she would probably look at the last jedi and be like oh that's a drama like a heart pounding drama mm-hmm. 
But of course, like I can't put words in Daisy's mouth. Like I don't know what she even thinks of that, you know? And then I think that she would think that maybe the force awakens kind of achieve something similar. And now my understanding is that perhaps the rise of Skywalker will be more of a adventure romp than what we saw before. And I'm just interested to see how that fits into Star Wars. I have no doubt that it will. It's just, it's really interesting to me how this last episode perhaps could move away from those. Like, I I don't know. I really just don't know what she means. I guess that, (laughs) like she said, it'll be clearer when we see the film. (laughs) Yeah, that's probably what she means. (laughs) well i just think it's like i think it's really fascinating to this idea that like oh it'll become really clear when the movie comes out what the genre is well what's funny is that daisy assumed that everyone was totally on board with who her parents were in the force awakens and everyone was like no (laughs) yeah (laughs) so yeah we should definitely revisit this in uh 2020 (laughs) yeah i'm really excited too and that's why i'm glad that we talked about it here Mm-hmm. Okay, so we should probably start talking about the actual genres that we're going to be analyzing in this episode. So part one, we're going to be talking all about the genre of fairy tale. In part two, we're going to be talking about westerns. And then in part three, we're going to wrap it up with George's favorite, the space opera. <laughs> so without further ado, let's get started. So who talks first? You talk first? I talk first? Okay, welcome to part one where we are talking all about fairy tale, which... I don't want to say it's my favorite, but it kind of feels like my favorite. Really? Interesting. <laughs> I, I love fairy tales. I think they're – I mean, there's a reason they've endured for so long. Um, they are whimsical. They're magical. I love a fantasy element. The like magical realism, I think, is one of my favorite things in stories. I don't know. I think there's just so much – imagination that comes into the genre of fairy tale and it looks like a lot of different things in different cultures and in different traditions and different stories so i really like that george really likes fairy tale as well as do most of the other star wars directors i think <laughs> they, <laughs> yeah, they do fairy tale uh yes. pretty heavily uh let's not forget jj abrams famously called the I mean, basically, the whole J.J. Abrams commentary for Force Awakens is like, this is a fairy tale. Look at this prince. Look at this hidden princess. He Look appears at like a forest. prince. Look <laughs> at <laughs> a prince. <laughs> Look at the hair. As you saw in the intro, this um, whole discussion is going to be a little bit more of a free-flowing discussion than what we usually do. Um, so we have a lot of quotes that we've pulled from places that we've researched to kind of just talk about what other people think the definition of these genres are and then how we see that explored within Star Wars itself. And so we're going to start it off with George Lucas. And uh, he has this quote to say about Star Wars. Because I realized that there are no modern fairy tales. I wanted to make a film, a film that would strengthen contemporary mythology and introduce a kind of basic morality. And I think this quote is – I think it's interesting to think about how George was like, I'm going to create modern-day mythology. Even though – and I don't remember when we – like when he said this, like where we got this quote from as far as like – was it It was early on. It was really early on. It was during the original trilogy era? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not second trilogy? No. Not third trilogy? Mm -hmm. First trilogy. Okay. Got it. So I don't know where I was going with that train of thought. I got caught up in the trilogy discussion. (laughs) But that he is 
looking at the landscape of film at the time in the 70s and 80s and knows that there's something missing. And for him, it's fairy tale. Why do we think that is? Or I don't know. I just think that's an interesting conclusion for him to come to, especially considering the kinds of content that he was making prior, excluding American graffiti. But like TH. THX 1138 is not at all a fairy tale. It does not resemble a fairy tale at all. <laughs> at, all. <laughs> at all. And then he gets to this point a few years later and he's like, you know what? Fairy tales. I think that to me, I'm like when you're writing a story that is so heavily influenced by the hero's journey and Joseph Campbell and you are pulling from things like Flash Gordon, which I'm sure we'll talk about when we talk about space opera. Um, you are pulling from archetypes and you're writing from archetypes that fall under the fairy tale kind of lens. So the moment he puts princess in front of Leia's name, to me, it's so easy to understand that that's kind of the idea of fairy tale. I think that Princess Leia obviously is a princess who doesn't necessarily fall under the terms of what we imagine princesses to be in fairy tales. Regardless, I think that 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 concept and him writing things like the farm boy and the princess and like the evil father, I think all of these things, you can't be writing and not be aware that you're writing something that resembles an old storybook or a fairy Mm -hmm. tale. And that's to me, or like you even start the movie with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, which is truly just another iteration of Once Upon a Time. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that in order to frame his movie and to write certain characters, I think that that has to be where he's thinking from. And sure, he could be trying to make a space epic, but I think he had to kind of start small with this idea of, okay, what are the the major points in a morality tale or a, a myth? And most of those fall under the fairy tale idea. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, the you know the the end of his quote there introduce a kind of basic morality, and that's mm-hmm. what all that's not what all fairy tales do. That's kind of more mythology, but a lot of fairy tale is rooted in who's right, who's wrong, what's the the good thing, the right thing to do. <laughs> yeah, the grim fairy tales usually all end in perhaps sometimes some sometimes a like a really dark morality lesson or an uplifting morality lesson there you it's a morality tale like the basic mm-hmm. the the basic fairy tale stories are moral based mm-hmm. and sometimes like i think that most modern people think that like fairy tales are often sometimes like the disney fairy tale aspect but i think if you look further back into like i mentioned the grim fairy tales sometimes they just get a little edgy and they really do kind of hammer home the morality aspect a little bit more clearly than disney sometimes does well there's this stereotype of fairy tales are for children Mm -hmm. and you know George has always said that Star Wars is for young people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's kind of that natural association with that uh, because, very, you know, who who needs to be taught morals? Like young children need to be taught what's right and what's wrong and this is how we do things in the world, you know. But at the same time, I mean, you can imagine George in the, you know, 50s and 60s and 70s and kind of the political turmoil that was going on then. And I think like a lot of us now today, it's like, oh, the world has lost its morality. Mm-hmm. And we're not talking about children there. We're talking about like the powers that be 
Um, right. That they have lost their morality. And so I, I imagine that George was thinking very much the same way about about his world as a young person, you know, in his 20s and 30s during this time. And, you know, maybe they need a reminder <laughs> of what's right and what's wrong and and kind of what a hero looks like and, and who a hero could be. Right. You know, that the hero could be the everyman. The hero could be you on the street doing the right thing for someone in a small or a big way. Mm-hmm. So we have these fairy tale tropes <laughs> that we pulled that, again, seem almost childish to go through them to be like, does Star Wars have this? Yes. Does Star Wars have that? Yes. But I think it's, I think it's necessary to kind of break down these things to look at just how influential these genres are into something like Star Wars that has kind of become its own genre at this point. Mm-hmm. Where like, I don't even know if I want to call Star Wars a genre, but it kind of is. No, yeah. What we were talking about last night, Caitlin, when we, when we were writing these show notes, I was texting Caitlin and I was like, there was this one review I read from The Last Jedi, and maybe a listener could help me out here. A one review that I read from The Last Jedi that talked about, and it was from a major outlet, and it talked about how Star Wars has become so almost self-referential. It has become its own thing and thus cannot be judged like other films because it is its its own separate like monstrosity, its own separate beast in like it's, a positive turn. You know, to, to bring it back to our monsters discussion, it's like its own Frankenstein of a genre. It basically is. And therefore, when it is referencing all these different things, it's like you can't dock points against them against it for not following those guidelines or like not carrying some influence all the way through I guess yeah Yeah, like it's not completely fairy tale so you can't judge it as a complete fairy tale yeah like I guess you could possibly say that Star Wars is a bad fairy tale but I do think Star Wars is a good fairy tale so I wouldn't agree with that but I, I I don't know. I think that you can't fully judge Star Wars on something, even though that's I'm what I'm saying right now is going against like the thesis statement of what we're supposed to be doing in this part. So we're going to carry on <laughs> because <laughs> well, we're, not, we're not judging Star Wars as a fairy tale. We're talking about the elements of fairy tale that are present in Star Wars. Yes. So let's go down this list because I thought of like a couple of different things when we were I I was writing this down. Um, so let's start with kind of the Cinderella-esque one, which is the evil stepmother and stepsisters. Did you think of something when you saw this? Mm, I just think it for me when I see that, it's kind of a placeholder for our main character, our hero growing up unattached to family or not having a traditional family. Um mm. But the evil, I mean, like, Vader is evil, but he doesn't have the same kind of relationship that, like, the stepmother has to Cinderella. So I think that's that's an example thing that's kind of morphed because Baru and Owen aren't evil, mm-hmm. but they are frustrating Luke. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. I think that if you were to assign this trope to something in Star Wars, I would say Vader falls more under this evil stepmother archetype than anything. I think that Vader lords over Luke in a way that Luke can't possibly shake. And I do think Star Wars subverts this trope by allowing Luke to see the good in perhaps the evil stepmother or the evil stepfather that is Vader. Um, But I do think that that's 
kind of the idea here, at least. Well, okay, here's a question. So when I think of fairy tale in Star Wars, I think pretty much exclusively of A New Hope and The Force Awakens. I don't really ascribe as many or as much fairy tale genre elements to the other Star Wars films. And I really don't apply it in the second trilogy really at all. Um, Like I think of A New Hope and The Force Awakens, like those are the ones that are most heavily influenced by fairy tale where you can really kind of pick out these beats and moments that are clearly a fairy tale. So like when talking about Vader as the evil stepmother archetype, I guess I'm like, well, I don't really see like that's not really represented in A New Hope, which is the film that I tend to think of as the most fairy tale. And obviously then it becomes the question of like, okay, well, are we talking about fairy tale like throughout the whole original trilogy, throughout the whole saga? just within one film like you can get into a lot of semantics obviously as we do reminder of our d23 d23 conversation (laughs) mere moments ago (laughs) but do you think of fairy tale as kind of equally prevalent throughout all of the star wars films or even just one of the trilogies yep (laughs) i do so and i will tell you why when we go down this list Okay. So the next one is Accidental Curse, which is a core life-altering decision that happens in the heat of the moment. And back to the earlier conversation that you just referenced, this is totally 100% to me an Anakin situation. He makes a core life-altering decision that happens in the heat heat of the moment that he is cursed with for the rest of his life. Okay, yes. But... But what? I guess, like... Going down this list, it's kind of like most of these for me apply in A New Hope and very few of them have like, we're talking about like, again, like this idea of like, is Star Wars a bad fairy tale because it doesn't check all of these boxes? No. But for me, if like only two out of the like 12 we have here apply to Anakin in the second trilogy, I don't know if I would consider that like as heavily fairy tale influenced as something like A New Hope or even the entire original trilogy that checks like 12, like 10 out of these 12 boxes. You know what I mean? I do, but I think I just have to disagree just given the fact that George Lucas wrote every single one of the prequels and he's the same person that said that he's creating a fairy tale. So I I have to ascribe cer- certain, I don't know, moments like those to him. Like, do you think an accidental curse happened in the original trilogy? You know, that's interesting because I think if you were to talk to Luke in The Last Jedi, he might consider the events of A New Hope as an accidental curse for the trajectory of what happened and led him to lose everything that he lost, basically. Right. So, like, in the hero's journey, like, an accidental curse is sometimes a crossing of the threshold? Yeah. And to me, I think that in The Last Jedi, Luke would also consider accidental curse to be when he stood above Ben and even though he didn't fully commit, he made a life-altering decision to even enter Ben's bedroom. Yeah. Yeah, I I would agree with that. And I, I, I don't really know where else I'd put that in terms of Luke's story. I think that it really is something that is a core character changer. Mm -hmm. and it happened for Anakin and it happens for Luke I guess I think that when we're looking at just the original trilogy that existed on its own at the time it had the most fairy tale influence the most Mm -hmm. obvious fairy tale influence but by the time we're getting into the creation of the second trilogy and the third trilogy now we're looking at 
like now George is really writing these things and, and the and JJ and Ryan are really writing these things on the saga scale, mm-hmm. thinking about how all of these pieces are coming together. And for me, that makes it more as a whole space opera. Like they're leaning more into that space opera genre, which we'll talk about, which I think is kind of like Star Wars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they're almost interchangeable, I think. Whereas you're right, like these fairy tale elements are still obviously where you're having this discussion. Like they're still prevalent in the second and third trilogy, but they're most prevalent in the original trilogy because that's all there was at the time. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're kind of leaning the most heavily on, I think. Um, in my opinion, anyway. Um, I know other people will probably disagree with that. But, like, I think, like, A New Hope, like, has all of these things, like Impossible Task, uh, Love at First Sight, Transformation, um, A Talking Bird or Droid. (laughs) Um, You know, uh, like, it has the most, whereas – and it's, like, all pretty condensed into A New Hope, I think, too. Or it's it's all – you can see it all in A New Hope, whereas – like with the second trilogy, like it has pieces here and there throughout the three films, but they're not all necessarily concentrated in one film. Am I making any sense? Yeah, I just think that we should push on because yeah, we said once upon a time and it, then there's the whole pretty is good and ugly is bad. Like you, you see like the ugly witch or when mm-hmm. you're turned bad, like you are foul looking or like in Beauty and the Beast when – um, the prince doesn't help the ugly witch and she turns out to be someone who can curse him um, and doesn't actually look like that. I think that those tropes are, aren't necessarily present in an overt way in terms of like visual beauty, but I do think that it is there in terms of um, visual language in the film, like Luke wearing white and Vader wearing black and uh, Leo even wearing white and, you know, I don't know, the, the, the stormtrooper is looking like skeletons in a weird way. Yeah, all of, well, even, all of even, these things kind of come back to aiding to this visual language. Mm-hmm. Even like masked, unmasked. Exactly. Uh, like the, you know, our, the people we see the most from the Empire are masked, whereas our rebel fighters are unmasked. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's also the Wicked Witch, which we've kind of discussed. Again, kind of Vader. Although, really, if we're talking about visuals here, it's Palpatine. (laughs) Yeah, I think Palpatine fully embraces the Wicked Witch trope, in my opinion. And I think that um, even by his transformation in Revenge of the Sith to – like, going back to the good equals pretty and, like, bad equals Mm -hmm. ugly, like, I think that – that has never been more prevalent than in Revenge of the Sith when he literally transforms his body into like a wrinkled mess, gross. right? Yeah, super gross. We're all like, no. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that 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 part is so fairy tale esque to me, where his body is like deformed from like evil deeds. Yeah, you know, and. I, are there any other characters that could potentially be the Wicked Witch? Like, I guess Snoke, I suppose, right? In his kind of foul ways. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just, it's really interesting when you start to think about these kind of things. Or, like, I, I think that Palpatine is the ultimate. But when you get, like, into smaller stories, there are certain places where I think the Wicked Witch trope could even come up again. Like... 
I don't know. Like, for some reason, I can't shake, like, Dooku being potentially a Wicked Witch who's, like, flying away on that um, that little motorcycle. Like, you can't you can't go past that. Like, it's so Wicked Witch of the West in Wizard of Oz, It really right? is. Yeah, no, it is. It's funny, though. I'll yeah. get you my pretty and your little Padawan, boat. too. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's that same thing, in my opinion. And I think that oh, – <laughs> you might laugh when you see that because it's like it's so even in on your subconscious nose. you know yeah it is so on the nose that like <laughs> he could even be sur- spelling out surrender jedi in the in the air oh my god okay <laughs> um, then you get crushed by by a house or by an atat <laughs> <laughs> and his little pajama pants stick out on the bottom pajama oh juku Oh my god, Pajama Dooku. Pajama Dooku. Uh. So the next one is Three Impossible Tasks, which I haven't like really spent enough brain energy to like think about in terms of threes. But I do think that like you get threes coming up often in Star Wars is something we've talked about a lot. You first off the trilogy is so like in a meta sense, and then there's a three act story, and then each there's three trilogies, and then each trilogy has three movies, and that's how you have a three act mm-hmm. story. And so there are three impossible tasks technically in each of the films. So like if you were to look at the original trilogy, obviously you have the impossible task of blowing up the Death Star, the impossible task of saving Luke's friends, or um, I don't know, escaping essentially. Um, survival. Yeah, survival, which seems like an impossible task and they're at impossible odds, which 3PO reminds you of constantly. <laughs> and then Return of the Jedi, you have the impossible task of redeem a soul, redeem a soul, (laughs) say, you know, down with the empire, you know, get rid of a 30 year long regime or whatever, 20 year long regime. (laughs) Whatever. Yeah. And I think those are clearly impossible tasks that are set apart in threes. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think the number three in Star Wars just kind of go hand in hand. They're kind of impossible to separate from one another. But yeah, I think you're right with the three the three impossible tasks. I think that's pretty on the nose. Um, the next one is protagonists that cannot keep promises. And my first thought is, of course, Luke in <laughs> Empire Strikes Back <laughs> mm-hmm. when he's like, I'll come back. I promise. And like he does. I mean, he does. But he promises. He does. He does. I guess I, I guess I kind of interpret it as like he goes his own way. Mm-hmm. Um and defies the like the recommendations, the wisdom of his superiors. This is where I think about Anakin and I yeah. think about all the promises that he can't keep. And that's kind of like the crux of his whole character. Um, he can't keep the promise of being a Jedi and he can't keep the secret of like for much longer of his marriage with Padme. He can't lie to himself about his own feelings he has to act out and perhaps it's not sometimes it's not like the worst thing ever (laughs) like some of his other decisions but he really just he can't he can't keep promises he can't keep his oath he he struggles yeah i think that's kind of the thesis statement for anakin is he struggles Poor Anakin. <laughs> but what about Ray? Like, Ray is our protagonist, one of our protagonists, and I, I do think she can keep promises. Yeah, I think, 
I think this is where Ray is a little bit different than kind of our traditional fairy tale tropes because the – so like if I think about A New Hope and A New Hope follows – has like very characteristic fairy tale tropes and, and almost like follows that hero's journey, which is very based in mythology and fairy tale, like the story beats, The Force Awakens really follows those fairy tale story beats too as it follows the hero's journey, but then it has – like it's a little bit different because I, don't, I feel like Ray does keep her promises. She's loyal to a fault, mm-hmm. um, which is also one of her weaknesses. Right. And I don't know if I think that this necessarily applies to her. Yeah. So this is where I think that our two halves of a protagonist comes in because Ben Solo, Kyla Ren absolutely cannot keep promises. He says that he is devoted to the dark and we see time and time again that not being true. Liar. Yeah. So I think that if we do consider Ryan Johnson's words of two halves of the same protagonist or two halves of the same coin, two halves of our protagonist. And I do. Yeah, I do too. Then <laughs> Ray truly represents someone who can keep promises, something that you should aspire to, and Ben does not. Right? Mm-hmm. And but in that way, they're a balance. Oh, absolutely. So keep doing – I mean, obviously don't keep doing everything you're doing, but <laughs> – Just enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> so the next one is Love at First Sight, which I think pretty across the board are Skywalker men <laughs> – like or in just- literally, literally every single f- first movie, <laughs> which is actually kind of crazy. Like, and I actually love it because yeah, so you funny. get Anakin who you know hits you right on the head with the "Are you are an you angel?" An line. Angel? Yeah, that is straight up love at first sight. No one no, can deny she? that she's beautiful. Yeah, bring her back. <laughs> Wait, where did you go? Bring back the entire message. Like, it's amazing. <laughs> he's like entranced by Leia, and. Mm. Then you get, <laughs> then you get the Raylo of it all with <laughs> with Kylo removing his helmet and revealing, like JJ says, something like a prince underneath, mm-hmm. and her being kind of dumbfounded, dumbstruck by who's underneath this like young guy. Yeah. And I think that it it subverts the trope of love at first sight because there's no like swelling of the music. It's kind of arresting the whole scene where you're like not expecting that unless you are because you know Adam Driver's under there but (laughs) but like the whole point is that she's caught off guard by this and it's not it follows this fairy tale trope but it's not necessarily Mm -hmm. this like swelling of the music like Romeo and Juliet's theme even though that is in The Force Awakens (laughs) when (laughs) the bridal carry which isn't listed on this but bridal carry is totally a fairy tale trope yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's hard with Kylo because we know that he probably had that moment of love at first sight with Ray, but because he is obscured under the mask, you can't really see it. But it comes through in his actions mm-hmm. where he's like, Who's the girl? What girl? He's already seen her in his visions. I'm a hundred percent. Not a hundred percent, but I'm fairly certain that he already knows who she is. And then when when he sees her, his First thought is like, well, gotta take her. Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, honestly, yikes. But like <laughs> back to the bridal carry, Hades and Persephone, kind of into darkness, the underworld kind of thing. It falls in line with those other mytho- mythological and fairy tale tropes. Absolutely. But 
the love at first sight one, I think. And then it just that just kind of rolls through into The Last Jedi so much when they're really when Ray is starting to see him in a different light. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, just the way that they look at each other throughout that whole film is really romantic. <laughs> It really is. I mean, it's really romantic in a gothic sense. Mm-hmm. So, I think that I think that in a weird way, like while the the sequel trilogy fairy tale themes are both obvious and obscured, and I mm-hmm. think that they're almost masked with this way that the Star Wars storytelling works and the visuals of Star Wars make it. And then, like like what I was saying before about how I was watching the James Cameron documentary all about science fiction, and I expected to see star wars there but it's not necessarily sci-fi i think that it's like all obscured under this like visage that is science fiction-esque spacey different yeah well the science fiction element i think is almost just like a setting um -hmm. because it's not even like star wars isn't even a strictly aesthetic sci-fi And that was what set it apart in the 70s, that it wasn't shiny and new. It didn't fall into what at the time they classified as Mm -hmm. sci-fi. So I think for me, the sci-fi element is honestly one of the weakest genres when it comes to Star Wars. But it is, in a way, kind of that foundation um, or that, like I said, I think it's kind of the setting of Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Okay, so the next one is Transformation and Returning Back from the Dead, which is we're all so familiar with it with things like Beauty and the Beast, um, When the Kiss Brings Them Back, or Snow White even, and all of those things. So Transformation is something that I think we see often throughout Star Wars, something that we talk about a lot on the show, and maybe it bears repeating, I don't know, that transformation happens when Anakin turns into Vader, but the biggest transformation happens when Vader turns back to Anakin. Mm-hmm. And while he doesn't survive, his like his sacrifice kind of lives on. And I will speak for Caitlin and I both here when I say that we expect something extremely similar to happen in The Rise of Skywalker, but maybe a little bit more mystical than what we saw with Vader. Agree. You yep. spoke for us well. <laughs> just because i think that if they really do like jj is very overt in his admiration of fairy tale tropes that if they do lean into this it could be really dramatic and in a way that i mean we see the rain kylo relationship kind of referred to often as beauty and the beast and i think it's a it's a good parallel because i think that that ending could be something that happens mm-hmm. in in the rise of skywalker Yeah, definitely. I completely agree with you. So the next one is trials for a new royal, either by inheritance and blood or assuming the throne, which I think you could just kind of rewrite this as trials for a new force user. (laughs) Um, And Luke, I think, obviously goes through this by understanding his inheritance. He's like, in a way, Luke is like a hidden prince of the the force really and uh, finding out that Vader is his father what does that mean for him the trials he has to go through with that and I think that this too will be further explored a lot with Kylo as we get more content with him from before 
uh, The Force Awakens. Obviously, that's a big part of his story is how he dealt with the pressure of being a Skywalker and kind of having that legacy thrust upon him and then also having the legacy of Vader when that when he found that out as well. So I think that one is pretty it's pretty obvious too. <laughs> yeah, and just back to your like I don't think this happens that much in the prequel trilogy. The first movie second of the prequel trilogy. trilogy of the second trilogy it begins with a royal. And in fact, all the skywalkers are in a weird way descendants of a royal line. So we have the queen marrying Anakin and then their daughter is a princess and like then that makes Ben Solo also technically royal in the House Organa. So you do get this, like it just, it it bears saying that in a way Ben Solo is a prince and he will go through the trials of a new royal based off of his assumption as um, the supreme leader. Mm-hmm. But I do think that this is something that we see throughout like the Skywalker lineage, which I think is really interesting, is that there's no shying away from the fact that these this family has for like three generations now held like royal court. Mm-hmm. And it's like like you said, I do think that it's like assuming assuming the throne by inheritance is for sure all about the force. And I think you even see that with Anakin when he's young. But mm-hmm. I do think that like it needs to be repeated that there's royalty and fairy tale tropes that are super overt in in Star Wars just by the way that you have Queen Amidala, you have Princess Leia, you have Ben Solo as a yeah. question mark. <laughs> in in canon, it's said that he has kind of rejected all of, of all of his like Alderanian like nobilities. Um but I I I don't know. I don't necessarily think they'll ever like walk back on that, but I'm interested to hear more about that because I think mm-hmm. that that's even in a, in its own way a way that Ben has dealt with these like quote like royal responsibilities or like assumption of inheritance yeah yeah i agree i guess i think that the i think you're right i think the royal lineage aspect of it as explicitly royal is more background than the force of royal of inheritance okay so our next element is the talking bird which i think it actually felt a lot of different people in star wars (laughs) <laughs> is it Yoda? Is it C-3PO? Is it R2? <laughs> like, who is it? It's all of those. Mm-hmm. And I think that if we are to kind of dive into speculatory nature of the Rise of Skywalker, something that like I don't think has been brought enough, brought up enough is Dio and the fact that he was modeled in one of the earliest like pieces of concept art that we've seen for the Rise of Skywalker is the fact that he was taken from like a rubber ducky and in a way i'm like how is he going to serve this like talking bird role will it be to bb8 will it be like why is what is his purpose that's so layered if now bb8 gets his own talking bird well i'm just like what what in what form we've talked about him before as like what does he represent i just like i don't know i'm still kind of like dumbfounded by the presence of Dio and I just think that he obviously has to perform something important but I think that if you are to talk about like the the trope of a talking bird like the first one that comes to my mind is the fact that we have a new droid who is like 
started off as looking like a rubber ducky, right? Which I think is crazy. It's funny. I guess I think I think Dio's just gonna be like a I think he's gonna be like a porg kind of <laughs> character. But I could be very wrong. Like you could be right. He could just become like super important. <laughs> <laughs> I think he I might mean, be. He might be. He might be. He very well could be. As of right now, I think he's like a porg. Yeah. Uh, but like a, a mechanical porg. <laughs> Regardless, he did descend from a bird drawing. He did. He did. You're very right. He did descend from a bird drawing. <laughs> okay. So the next one is Helpful Old Women, which I think is the first one that comes to my mind is, I think her name is Jira on on The Phantom Menace that she is like, a lot of her part got cut out in The Phantom Menace, but mm-hmm. on Tatooine. Um, but I think that really what falls in the helpful old woman role is Laura Santeca. Laura Santeca. Don't, I mean, don't I you think? Him. Like, I think that Laura Santeca is that role of like someone who's seen the past, who, mm-hmm. who, who comes from experience, who is immediately helpful. Um, by kind of laying everything out <laughs> in the very beginning of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Lord Santeca is super, well, I mean, he's super ambiguous, but he's very helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you're right. And uh, he kind of sets us off on our path yeah. down this story. And in a way, you could almost kind of say that Shmi is related to that too, because she gives us a lot of information too in The Phantom Menace. And she's the one that also helps Anakin go forward on his adventure too. Right. Albeit, obviously, she's a very different like type, type of character. Yeah, because she's the mother um, and immaculate of immaculate conception as well. So it's very different. But I think that she does have similar traits to the function that Loris and Tekka serves in The Force Awakens. Even Obi Wan Kenobi to Luke mm-hmm. is a helpful old woman. Yeah. <sighs> like when he comes down the canyon waving his arms. Mm hmm. <laughs> exactly. Super helpful. <laughs> so then the next one is a dashing and sometimes misguided prince, otherwise known as Ben Solo. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I think that to Leia, I think Han is that sometimes misguided prince, mm-hmm. like a smuggler with a heart of gold type situation. But I do think that Ben Solo, to me, is that dashing and sometimes misguided prince, like to a T. <laughs> yes and then the last one that we have listed here um and thanks for bearing with us i feel like this was a long slog was um the name that names are rare and sometimes unfinished man if that's not star wars <laughs> i don't know what is i know well actually i read something interesting that i haven't like to be honest i just i didn't really find enough to back it up, but I, I'll mention it here, is that some source that I read said that often um, in fairy tales, like the older ones, like maybe even before Grimm, like maybe, I don't know, I, I guess Han, Christian Anderson and Grimm were like around the same time, but um, that the tale of Hansel and Gretel, like the idea of the name Han, Hans or Hansel is like sometimes uh, like a Jane, a Jane Doe or uh, mm. of all these fairy tale characters, if they're not named, it sometimes can be interchangeable with Hans, which mm-hmm. I think is kind of interesting because we do have a character named Han. Yeah, that is really interesting, actually. The so, idea that like they're just a place filler for exactly like else. any character, like all these mm-hmm. archetypes. The final thing that I wanted to talk about with Star Wars being a fairy tale is that 
the settings are so important in fairy tales, like so important. And often it's like what builds the world and lets us feel comforted or scared or um, I don't know. It's it's very specific, you know, and I think that we all in our mind know what we're talking about here with castles, with like humble homes made from like ordinary objects, like a woman in the shoe or like Snow White's in the Seven Dwarves' house. You know, it looks so quaint. Yes. Or like in this. I mean, that's Shrek, but yeah. And Yoda's um, in a swamp too, though. Oh, oh, right, 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 right. And um, then you have like trolls and fairies, and I think that all of those are pretty representative of the Force in a way, and like the weird creatures that they encounter on all these different planets. But I think that just to kind of wrap up this section, like J.J. Abrams is like pretty super Force uh, purposeful in the fact that Maz's tavern wasn't just a tavern but it was like a castle and they were in this it was specifically named to be Maz's castle and then Mm -hmm. they're in this like storybook forest and the fight the first fight their meeting Ray and Kylo's meeting happens in a, a fairy tale green lush forest and their second fight ends in this snowy overrun forest as well and they're just like amidst this like storybook setting and it just it cannot be denied but it's it's super super overt that that was the reason behind these like explicit settings oh yeah he even i mean i think even in the commentary he said oh yeah yeah for sure fairy tale mm-hmm. <laughs> when he talks about like that whole sequence and that whole act on that planet um yeah, and I and think, I, I think that, it's, oh, go ahead. I was gonna say I just think it's interesting how we automatically know what we mean, like the kind of imagery we're evoking when we say like the storybook setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just so evocative in our heads. We know what that means. It's it's very gothic, like Sleeping Beauty art style. You know, um, castles and forests and princes and princes. Like we know what that means. I think that like why does this all matter? Why are we comparing Star Wars to? these like settings that sometimes are present in Star Wars and sometimes aren't. I think that like if you are taking note at what's going to happen in the story or how we're supposed to interpret the story, you have to analyze these kind of things because (laughs) they kind of inform your reading of what the character's motivations are, what the character implications are, and why the character was placed in this specific setting and what it's supposed Mm -hmm. to evoke of the whole scene. And that's why sometimes like I, I really do think that once we have this complete piece of the sequel trilogy, I think it will be so fascinating to go back and watch it as a whole and kind of consider it and recontextualize it as a full fairy tale. Because I, once we have all those, it might look a little bit more familiar than what it looks like now, which feels slight, sometimes slightly disjointed to the regular audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think you summed it up really nicely. <laughs> uh, 2020 is going to be a hell of a year for Star Wars. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right, so are we ready to move on to part two? Yes. Okay, so welcome to part two where we're going to be talking about Westerns. So I think this has come up a lot recently when people have been talking about Star Wars and perhaps specifically Solo because I think that people thought that Solo was going to fall under, and I think it did, fall under the Western trope a little bit more than it did. Or I think that when people were talking, thinking about what Solo was going to look like, I think most people thought that it was going to be a smuggler journey similar to like the basic Western, right? Like, would you agree with that, Caitlin? 
Oh, yeah. I think that's what everyone thought because Han is that character who's often described as a space cowboy, a gunslinger, yeah, a his, smuggler. His costume even bandit. reflects that. Yeah, exactly. A holster mm-hmm. um, that's so Western. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, George often talks about Star Wars like a Western and that it pulled, but like when George talks about it, he describes kind of, he references the serialized nature of Westerns mm-hmm. a lot and that influence in Star Wars, which I think goes hand in hand with Han and how we talk about the episodic nature of Han's life and his character and and the way that he's kind of realized in Star Wars. And so I think to I think that was kind of a really fair assumption to be like solo will probably have a lot of western feel. <laughs> and I feel like it did and I even think some shots were specifically composed to reflect certain um famous Western kind of tropes and shots like I'm thinking of specifically at the very end when Han and the group like meet up with Emphis and Emphis like takes off her mask all of that was shot so much that it was supposed to look like in an old saloon and even you just get the shot of like from Han's feet you know through his legs and Mm -hmm. things like that so um, I think that Solo did check a lot of Western boxes, but something I do see talked often about is that perhaps The Rise of Skywalker will fit more into the Western trope than any other Star Wars movie. And I think it's really interesting. And as we were digging into this, I found myself fully agreeing and like actually 100% subscribing to that theory that The Rise of Skywalker could have been written with Westerns in mind and specifically shot as such and i just kind of want to go through some of the the common western plots because obviously not all of them first off not even all of them are like politically correct anymore maybe none of them are but i think Mm -hmm. that they the ideas that are present in like driving a plot forward that a western does could be used in star wars like Mm-hmm. Okay, so the first thing is is that a common Western plot sometimes even is the construction of a railroad or a telegraph line on the wild frontier. So it could even be as simple as like that microcosmic situation, which we're not going to see in Star Wars. I just have to put that out there. <laughs> we did see a train in Solo. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I think that there's a reason why we saw the train in Solo, because that's like the whole thing in like the cowboy era was like – Mm-hmm. the the movement of trains and like the building of trains and train tracks and like settling the west and all this kind of and stuff continental railroad i think it's important to also think about when the the genre of westerns was kind of created the western genre as we kind of think of it today is very much an american mm-hmm. genre it grew out of america in like i mean it started in like the 30s but it really like it really became its own thing in like the 40s and 50s and 60s. Um, that was really its heyday, but you kind of see the beginning of it in the in like the 20s and 30s. But if you think about what people like for people of that era, the like they're searching, like they're creating an American mythology in this time period. Mm-hmm. Like in the 50s, it's like in that time period in America, it's about like how do we define what America is? What is American history? And how do we translate that into a story that kind of is our personal American mythology? Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's kind of the foundation of Westerns. And so, you know, we we built trains. <laughs> and that's part of our history. And, you know, um, 
it's family and you know there's the manly man and the woman and like it, it has very much these tropey elements to it that we're telling a very specific version of like the American dream in a way but like a grittier version of it um I don't know I think I think the western genre is one after doing this this research I, I haven't really delved a lot into and I want to more um, I want to watch different types of Westerns more because I think it's a really fascinating look at kind of the American psyche mm-hmm. back in the mid 20th century. And of course, this is George's era as well. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to have a big influence on him too. And so I think I think that's kind of necessary to put Westerns in context, whereas fairy tales are kind of all-encompassing for so many different cultures and traditions. There are similar themes we can point to kind of across the world but westerns are very inherently american yeah and i think star wars is also inherently american mm-hmm. and i like I, yes it's a movie that was produced and filmed abroad but there's something that's so culturally american about star wars that sometimes maybe these kind of go hand in hand which feels like a stretch but i actually don't think it is yeah, I think you could I think you could easily kind of make the argument that that Americanness of Star Wars is kind of directly tied back to this Western influence because Westerns themselves are inherently American. Mm-hmm. And I think that I don't know, if anyone's listening has never watched a Western in their life, I recommend a lot, but I do think that maybe one to start with is True Grit, if you're wondering. I love True Grit such a good movie the remake is great and the original one is amazing too anyway that brings me to my next point which is something i do think is going to come up in the rise of skywalker westerns are often revenge stories and they hinge on the chase and pursuit by someone who's been wronged i just hope that going back to daisy's quote about it just feels like kids going on an adventure with the rise of skywalker i really do hope that it's like this revenge now that we know that palpatine is back that like they're going to as kids on an adventure go on this journey to bring down someone who's wronged the entire galaxy Mm -hmm. and i think that we've even seen in the trailer like in terms of a chase and pursuit the 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 like split second that we see of like Poe and Finn and 3PO on that like barge looking thing being chased it is super western esque to me even just like the desert mm-hmm. environment and just like the chase of it all is it falls so under what we know as like the visual language of westerns yeah i think i think a lot of what we're going back to is what visual language is being used throughout these films and there's so um, I say obvious, but I don't mean obvious in like a bad way, but they're just – they're character defining for these genres. Like when we think of Western, we think of, you know, obviously the West and dirt and the frontier and grit and lived in. Mm-hmm. And then it's all things that Star Wars is at its core as well. And then and, – and even like <laughs> – even to be like super um, – like analytical on word choice, like the word adventure you associate, I think, more with Western, whereas the word like journey, that feels more like mythological and it's going to bring you back to like that fairy tale feeling. Mm -hmm. And so when Daisy said like we talk about the hero's journey, 
that's mythological. But then Daisy says something like, oh, it's an adventure. And automatically our head is kind of bringing, pulling like those images that you were talking about from the teaser trailer of Poe and, and Finn and through Peel on like that barge and like, ah, oh, yes, like that's an adventure. Mm-hmm. But then when we think journey and fairy tale, we're immediately drawn back to like The Force Awakens and, you know, the fa- the the snowy forest. And like the fact that, um, like you said, it's just like what what type of visual language they're using in any given scene. And as will be included on the next version of Sky Talkers Bingo, what is the function of that visual language in any given scene? Like what is the purpose of having um, Daisy call it an adventure or having that scene with the barge look more like a Western as opposed to the scene in Force Awakens, which looks more like a fairy tale? Mm-hmm. You know, like what is the ultimate end point here? And I think that will be that will be something really fun to discuss because I think you and I, like, we really look forward to the fairy tale element. At least I know I do because for me, I feel like that's where the Force stuff lives. Um, but if we're, like, drawing more into that Western adventure feel, if that's going to be the predominant influence maybe, then, like, how is fairy tale going to be – I don't know. I'm just – I'm kind of thinking out loud, but – like what how are those visual languages going to intersect throughout this film i guess is the truth is that they already have throughout all of yeah. star wars so i wouldn't be worried yeah, exactly. about it but it'll be really interesting to see yeah and one of the 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 plot points here that comes up often in westerns is stories about a lawman or a bounty hunter tracking down his quarry and i know that that feels so familiar to everyone here with just even the story of jabba the hut and han solo and all this stuff but there's a part of me that wonders if oh, even even just like the f- first one minute of the teaser trailer for The Rise of Skywalker is on this desert arid, arid planet and it opens with this shot, again, using the word visual language, I'm going for it, the visual language of the camera kind of focusing on Ray's holster and like her even just her her movements, it is so Western. And then the approach of the TIE fighter coming coming to her, it truly could not be more Western. I think that it feels so unfamiliar to us because it's so overt in, in this way. There's no music. There's nothing, you know. And it's almost like if – and I kind of want someone to do this, and I don't know if they have. If they could replace the music or the sound of what you hear in that moment um, with kind of the the traditional Western music, which is, you know, like, you know, the whistle, or even, all that kind of yeah, stuff. Even like a tumbleweed. That's what I was going to say. Like, you can sound. imagine a tumbleweed going by before you see the, the TIE fighter. And mm-hmm. the whole idea of a bounty hunter tracking down his quarry. And I think that Caitlin and I kind of have thought that they're working together that kylo and ray are working together but if you analyze it through the western lens perhaps they're not because they're coming at each other and that's something that happens so often in western movies is that Mm -hmm. you have this kind of stalemate and i do think that maybe kylo ren is somehow like tracking down his quarry or something in that he needs to like meet up with ray somehow right and mm-hmm. I think that there may be even just as by an extension of that, maybe they're tracking down something that will help them destroy Palpatine. I don't know. Yes. And all of these things, like, it's just, I, I have to reference, like, the fact that the opening shot, the 
everyone's so sick of me hearing this that like there's that personal conflict that the teaser completely spends more than half of the time focusing on between Ray and Kylo here but they set it up in such a dramatic western way that every time I watch it I just cannot get over it and it gives me Mm -hmm. hope because I think about reading all these western tropes which often are so rooted in outdated ideas like even just you know, fending off like hostile environments that sometimes like, you know, everyone's familiar with Westerns that like, it's like the Native Americans and, you know, having to like guard your land. Like it's, it's a terrible time for American cinema that we can look back upon. But I do hope that Star Wars can maybe like take that trope and kind of like rise above it to say something more than what was said before in, in film history. And I even think that like some of what we've seen from, from Annie Leibovitz in the Vanity Fair, all of this, like these colors are so like pastoral natural. in a way. What, what'd you say? Natural. Yes. Natural, like pastoral in a way that's so Western and American West and like Utah, Arizona as colors. And it's just, it's so surprising to me. And I'm just, I'm ready for the rise of Skywalker to kind of subvert subvert those like expectations for what a Western is and like grow beyond of what we know, like deep in our subconscious, what a Western is as well. Mm -hmm. In a way, I kind of think that the kind of the big picture of the rise of Skywalker will be as we've been discussing, very, like, more heavily Western-influenced. And hopefully, like you said, it is doing new things because that genre does have a lot of problems. So many. So many. Like, so many problems. Uh, But clearly it has a very recognizable visual language. Aesthetic, for sure. uh, Yeah, aesthetic. So I think that the big picture of the film perhaps could be very Western-influenced, but then, like, that – fairy tale side of it is when we actually start looking at the relationship between Ray and Kylo throughout the film. And I kind of, I don't know, I, I am doing a lot of thinking out loud and speculation as far as like where these genres fit in. And, and at the end of the day, just like with all of our other films, they're going to, it's going to be fluid mm-hmm. and it's not going to be like only fairy tale elements are ascribed to Ray and Kylo and only Western, like Poe is the only one who may have a holster. You know, like it's, it's not going to be like that, obviously. But if we're kind of looking at concentration or influence of these genres and, and elements and, and again, that aesthetic, that visual language, that's kind of where I think, um, because again, it's like, like you were saying, like there's natural tones, there's warm tones. We attribute more to the western but then like i'm thinking of them on the death star with like all the water and like those cool tones i'm like oh that's like that's more fairy tale that's more mythic to me it's more like romance too in a way yeah dramatic Mm -hmm. it's gothic um which has a lot of romance in woven into there too and so i just think it's interesting how like so much of how we're talking about these genres really is Almost more than anything, it's the visual language of what's going on in these films. Mm -hmm. Like even just this, like, we have a lot of notes here. I'll just read it out loud. Like the search and destroy plots. I do think that's going to happen in The Rise of Skywalker. Has to with Palpatine. Runaway Mm -hmm. stagecoaches. We've seen that already. 
in in the teaser, breathtaking settings and open landscapes like the Tetons or the Monument Valley, to name a few. Like I think that Pasana, that first planet that we do see in the teaser, looks just like this. Like it completely underscores all of these things. Um, even outlaws. Like I think that we've seen the resistance are outlaws. Like they're outlaws. So I don't know. There's just so much there. Mm-hmm. Even Poe's scarf. It's a bandana. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And like even characters' names like Zori Bliss to me sounds so Western. Like Zori Bliss, like gunslinger. Like what is that? You know? Burst into a saloon. Yeah. And then you have pieces like Vic Mahoney's mood board that we all like squeed about last year. And it has wow. a bunch of Western pieces on it. Like even – and I, we probably talked about this, and I just haven't revisited that episode. But the there's this one woman on there, and I forget what movie it's from, but it's a western mm-hmm. with a woman in a cowboy yep. hat and all these things. And I just think that with a gun, like, and if that's supposed to be some sort of inspiration for Ray, then yeah, it makes sense that like that is part of the mood. It is part of the aesthetic of the Rise of Skywalker. Mm-hmm. Well, even Janna and Finn on, I forget what the creatures are, but like the horse-like creatures. Yes, space horses. In, in, a, in a field. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she's got a gun or a bow caster. She's got some kind of weapon. It's bare. And like, I think even if I'm thinking of the picture correctly, even the textures of the, of the, um, fabric and stuff that they're wearing and that are on the the creatures it is very much reminiscent of what you would see on a horse um in a western yep absolutely and like you have this quote here and i want you to talk about it um it says often the hero in a western meets his opposite or a double a mirror of his own evil side that he has to destroy of course i think of ray and kylo and this and how this will be kind of change in the rise of skywalker but you know the hero in the western is often the do-gooder cowboy very much like han solo smuggler but has a heart of gold but a rough exterior right he's gritty but he means well but then like they're often going up against these corporations um and you know like building the railroad the railroad tycoon and like that's kind of the evil mustache twirling villain but it's like they're like the, these archetypes are set up to be opposites, but then in a way too, it's like oh well, if the hero had gone on a slightly different path, he would have ended up just like the railroad tycoon, or mm-hmm. he would have ended up in a very similar situation. And so he has to vanquish that—a mm-hmm. um, mirror of his own evil side that he has to destroy. So you know, and often in these films, it's like oh, to to be the hero at the end, to get the girl, to save the town. To, to save the day, he has to vanquish that that evil side, that evil villain in order to win at the end. And I think that's really interesting when you think about Ray and Kylo because, of course, they are mirrors of each other. And, but they don't seek to destroy each other. Mm-hmm. And they seek to – they seek to understand each other, which – is good, obviously, <laughs> because they they exist on both sides, right? Like Kylo could look at Ray and say, like, that's the mirror of his own light side, and Ray could look at Kylo and say, that's the mirror of his own of her own dark side, and I think they do, and I think that's how at least Ryan Johnson looks at them, and I would imagine JJ does too. Um, whereas with 
like with a Western, often it's two men who are these characters and they're very much like on polar opposites and never like, and even though they are reflections of each other, never shall the two meet. Mm -hmm. Like you can never, like in a way, you know, like you can never actually reach your reflection because it's not like it's in the mirror. I don't know how to explain that, but they're, they're set up in those archetypes and they stay firmly in those archetypes. Whereas Ray and Kylo have a lot of elements of those archetypes, but again, it's more fluid. And we're now telling the story in a modern day age for a modern day audience and building off of all the mythology that has come before it. And so it's going to look a little different. And so they are mirrors of each other, but they don't necessarily have to destroy each other anymore. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. I think that just kind of shifting gears because I agree with every, I don't think I have anything else to add to say to what you said. Um, I think we're talking a lot about the sequel trilogy and that's great because I really do think that like, I think I would put money on because we've seen it already that so much of the rise of Skywalker will fall under this Western genre. But I do think that at looking ahead, the Mandalorian promises to be, more of this lone gunslinger type idea. And I can't wait just even after talking about this is it'll be really interesting if that comes out, you know, in three months or so. And then right after that, you get the rise of Skywalker. Are those tones going to feel similar? Are we going to be looking at something that kind of has a, a similar feel in this like lone gunslinger Western vibe? It'll be interesting to see or if whether or not these two, um, series well one series and one film kind of diverge in like they they pick and choose what they want from the western genre will it be too much gunslinging i mean that's the major question (laughs) that's that's my question too much gunslinging i did think it was kind of cool when the little bit i was reading about westerns how they talked about there is the subgenre of westerns called the epic western Mm mm-hmm which, of course, I was like, oh, Star Wars is epic. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of one of the definitions of epic Western, just kind of just to briefly mention, is that it focuses on family or social struggles against wilderness or corrupt governments, while individual actions, including traveling stagecoaches and wagon trains, cattle drivers, the construction of a town or railroad, and battling Indians. Um I think we all recognize that as well and can kind of bring that back to Star Wars too. You know, social social struggles against wilderness um, against or corrupt governments. Clearly, that's very prevalent in Star Wars. Individual actions that include tra- traveling stagecoaches or the Millennium Falcon, <laughs> whichever. <laughs> Cattle drives, fathers. <laughs> um, I think I, I – I want to look more into the genre of epic Western because they, they a lot of the information I found on it didn't talk about it as in-depth as the genre as a whole, but gave a lot of examples of films that fall into epic Western. So I think I definitely want to take some time to watch some of those because mm-hmm. I think that I would like to see more of that genre and what exactly it entails. But again, it seems like it seems that it's more on a grand scale and and often that the characters are traveling greater distances, like they're mm-hmm. physically going more places. You know what movie I'd recommend? Mad Max no. Fury Road, <laughs> which oh actually God. really falls under the epic epic mm-hmm. Western um category. And I feel like That brings me to a conversation where I feel like we have been kind of referring to Westerns as like an old timey movie. 
But there are Mm. a lot of current day movies that are revisiting the Western genre, sometimes to success, sometimes to not. But I do think that often the way they use it is to make a social commentary on perhaps Mm. the past or now. In the example of Mad Max Fury Road, that's a great example of that. But um, even just like, I don't know if anyone saw the latest Quentin Tarantino film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's like a playoff of Once Upon a Time in the West and um, has so much, uh, like it really just uses Westerns to reflect on like kind of the has-been status of the characters. And it really just says something about the nature of the characters and i think that often that's what happens when you have like modern westerns but um i think that there's more interest in exploring those type of movies and i don't Mm -hmm. know i I think that i really do think that the rise of skywalker will be more western than ever in star wars (laughs) i actually remember a tweet and i can't remember who it was from but it was someone in the movie business and it was like it caused a lot of stir and it, i'm just now remembering it that was that was like they had seen the cut or something and maybe the the disney footage that sometimes floats around before the teaser comes out that they, that was like everyone talks about how solo was a western and but the episode 9 is really the western episode 9 is the western and i'm just now remembering that so i really hope that's true yeah. because yeah and I wish I could find that tweet. Like, someone please tweet at me that tweet because I, I think it's really interesting. I don't know what time – when it was or if it was last year or something, but I remember that. Just go go back into the – go back to Twitter and find it just yeah. in general. Twitter. Yeah. Maybe Slimo knows. <laughs> Slimo. Please help. You're our only hope, Slimo. <laughs> Literally, though. <laughs> okay. Well, is there anything else we want to say about Westerns? Nope. Okay. <laughs> Listen, big deal. You got another problem. Women always figure out the truth. Always. All right. Welcome to part three, where we're talking all about space opera, which I think is kind of the best way to describe Star Wars. And I think it's funny because I don't really think of anything else as space opera. (laughs) I I mean, like, for me, Star Wars is the ultimate space opera. Mm -hmm. Like, it it kind of encompasses everything. And I think kind of a good place to start is Roger Ebert's original review for Star Wars in 1977. I'm actually surprised we haven't read this on the show yet. It's so good. (laughs) It's so good. It's quite long. And this is just a snippet of it. But he really, like, he just, he immediately gets it. It's kind of crazy. He, like, he gets it. Mm -hmm. So this is a snippet of his of his original 1977 review of Star Wars. Quote, Star Wars is a fairy tale, a fantasy, a legend, finding its roots in some of our most popular fictions. The golden robot, lion-faced space pilot, an insecure little computer on wheels must have been suggested by the Tin Man, the Cowardly Lion, and the Scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz. The journey from one end of the galaxy to another is out of countless thousands of space operas. The hardware is from Flash Gordon, out of 2001, A Space Odyssey. The chivalry is from Robin Hood, the heroes are from Westerns, and the villains are a cross between Nazis and sorcerers. Star Wars taps the pulp fantasies buried in our memories, and because it's done so brilliantly, it reactivates old thrills, fears, and exhilarations we thought we'd abandon when we read our last copy of Amazing Stories. And 
that is just like the perfect description of Star Wars. It really is. He hits on every like every genre we've been talking about and all the ones we have it. He he takes our two hour podcast and just smushes it into a tiny paragraph. <laughs> like done. <laughs> But I mean, and in, in that all of these things are kind of wrapped up into space opera itself. Um, but like, it's fantasy, it's legend. And my favorite part is where he talks, where he writes, Star Wars tapped the pulp fantasies buried in our memories. And for me, I think that really goes back to fantasy and fairy tale and mythology and these like moral stories that were told as children that get kind of buried as we grow up. And that Star Wars, I think in a lot of ways, George's intention was to unlock that piece of us again. And of course, you know, Roger, he gets it. Yeah. So what is space opera? Like, we should define it. Because I feel like some people throw this term around because they've heard it so much in Star Wars that they don't Mm. necessarily know what it is. To me, space opera is, and from my research, this is what I've gathered, that space opera is when it spans a long time, that it's an epic, that it is combining elements of fantasy but it isn't necessarily space fantasy that it it jumps from planet to planet that sweeping galactic romance is crucial that you have different alien species around that um i don't know that really the emphasis is on the amount of space travel that happens it can't be a stationary like pastoral-esque planetary story it has to be jumping from planet to planet to planet, which we know Star Wars does in each and every one of their movies. We see like maybe maximum 10 planets a movie and minimum three. Mm-hmm. And it often takes place in space. And I think that like, then you think about like, okay, does Star Trek classify as space opera? And I'm not so sure it does. I think that it, some elements are there, but I think definitely it checks the traveling box. And I think that, like, <laughs> I don't know. I think that there's a lot of conversation about, like, oh, because Star Wars is so fairy tale esque and fantasy esque, that it really is just space fantasy and not space opera. But I do think that it is more space opera than perhaps anything else that we've seen, just based off of not only like the creator saying that it is space opera, like you have to recognize mm-hmm. that, but the fact that it really does check every single box. And like scholars have gone on to say that. Star Wars like exceeds any other previous space opera that was in the genre before and like kind of perfects it and puts it on a grander scale. And I think that Mm -hmm. like most people are mostly familiar with Flash Gordon and I think Flash Gordon does satisfy that itch of space opera. But Star Wars, as we all know, elevated that to a mass scale. Yeah, I think that this scale is kind of the thing that really sets Star Wars apart from other films in this genre. And not only the scale of just kind of going to different planets, but also the scale of time and (laughs) that it's been with us physically in the real world for a long time. And then it also takes up a lot of time in its own internal story. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, And I think that is kind of the piece that really sets it apart. And this whole opera, operatic uh, element to it, I think is just is like so delicious of a tidbit. Mm-hmm. I feel like normal people don't really think of opera and associate that with Star Wars. But it is 
so tied to it because it is just so melodramatic and um, referential. And then that kind of makes you think too of like this play component of it. And again, going back to that number three, like it, it has a structure, it has a play structure. And, and often, I mean, I'll be honest, I haven't watched, I don't know a ton about opera as like its own genre and as its own thing. But from the little bit I do know, there's always a lot of like romance and family struggle and tragedy. Did someone say Star Wars is tragedy? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And there's that, there's tragic elements to it. And all of these things are within Star Wars and then they're in space Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they're on this generational and galactic scale. I mean, how much more dramatic can it get? You have this one family that you're tracking through, you know, three generations at this point who have influence on the politics and the like the running of the galaxy for a really long time. <laughs> like that's intense. Yeah, for sure. And like not only that, just to kind of go back to the opera of it all, like Star Wars is musical and it's so informed by its music that is like the beating heart of what star wars is and kind of maintains like a steady conjecture throughout the entire saga and that's the main thing of an opera as well and i think that that's why star wars kind of executed all these different things so perfectly in the genre of space opera and i think that there's like i don't know if star wars today is as space operatic as it was when George was creating it. And I think that's like something that could be discussed. I think that it does like, it does, it hits hits all these boxes, but I don't think that like something like The Mandalorian is going to be a space opera. Mm -hmm. I think that Star Wars is like kind of diverging into all these different mediums and genres, which is something that I can't believe we haven't even talked about, but that was kind of the original intention of the Disney purchase and like the the spinoff movies is that they'd be able to kind of explore these one-off genres in a way that Star Wars has never before. And I think that you can look at even like Solo wanting to be mostly Western And, like, perhaps not 100% making it in the box office as, like, many people thought. And I'm not saying that to, like, start any fights. But I just – I think that they paused spinoff movies because of Solo's performance at the box office. And I I love Solo. But I think that maybe that experiment – it, it, to me, it, this whole conversation proves that Star Wars cannot just be one thing. Do you know what I mean? Am I making sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think I think you are making sense. I think it's a good discussion to have as far as like how these other things fall into these genres, and and I'm surprised we haven't talked about it yet. But the Star Wars feeling, yeah, and how that yes. kind of operates operates over everything in Star Wars, and in a way, like covers all flaws uh-huh. <laughs> um, for the ways that it is a bad fairy tale or a bad Western or a bad – whatever it is. You know, it's like, but, but does it have that Star Wars feeling? You know, and it's like if you got that and, – and that goes back to what you were saying, that tweet you couldn't find earlier, that Star Wars feeling could just as easily be that Star Wars genre. Mm-hmm. Um, and like what does that mean? As we've been going through a lot in this episode, a lot of that is like visual language and visual cues. And so much of Star Wars is wrapped up in its visual language and, and the definition of Star Wars 
is tied to that visual language that is so unique to these films. But I think you brought up an interesting point of like, or just an interesting thing to think about of like, okay, so do things like Clone Wars, do they fall into any of these genres? Does Rebels or Resistance, Solo, Rogue One, where do they fall on this spectrum? Because I think you're right that like space opera isn't for those. Yeah. And I I think that when we have the whole saga to look back on, this, the third trilogy will feel very operatic um, with – you know, of course, depending on how it concludes, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I feel like it will as a whole, but that we don't really see represented in our shows. Um, and maybe that's because of the serialized nature of them. Uh, Which is ironic given the fact that Flash Gordon was serialized and yeah. that was – and Star Wars itself is also serialized in a way. yeah. I just think that it's something I've actually been critical about in the past and maybe I should kind of like pump the brakes on a little bit, but something that kind of had always kind of bothered me about the Clone Wars and Rebels was that it sometimes falls too deep into referencing films and being extremely overt in its references. Like the Zillow Beast Mm -hmm. is very clearly Godzilla. Godzilla. Yeah. And then you have like... I forget which episode title it is, but when rebels and when the rebels discover um, Rex and his crew and like they go like fishing and they're on the boat and it's just so Jaws and it like it really takes me out of it because Mm -hmm. Jaws is its own thing. And I I just I feel like in a way Star Wars shows have tried to be really experimental with sticking to one genre to some people's success, but I would argue to not a success because I don't necessarily think that like it, it takes me out of it. And I think that that's where Lucasfilm is much different than like something like Marvel, which has been really experimental with some of their latest films in terms of like pushing the boundaries about what they can do. But like you mentioned, Star Wars really does have to fit into an understanding of what the Star Wars feeling is. And maybe the Star Wars feeling is wrapped up in mixing a ton of genres rather than being a specific one. Yeah, I think it's just a matter of ones that are more successful than others, yeah. though. Because I think, I mean, we look at, and that's the, I mean, like, honestly, like, that's the place to do experiments like that is in these shows mm-hmm. because it's lower budget, it's a lower risk. Yeah. Whereas, you know, like, a lot of people were critical of Ahsoka's arc and how closely it, it followed and, and referenced Alfred Hitchcock films. But I think that led to some of the best sequences we've seen in Star Wars. Yeah. And, and then, like, even with, um, like, Brain Invaders, very horror-influenced. Uh, and, and even that episode in Resistance with uh, Poe and Kaz when they go – out to the mining planets and you know there are like dead bodies floating around them and it's all shadows and like that's very much like thriller influence um whereas i guess i see what you're saying like the rebels episode it's like very specifically jaws Mm -hmm. (laughs) and there's kind of a difference between heavily referencing a specific film like jaws versus leaning more into the horror genre that's more general so I can see your point there. Um, but I think and, – and even like Last Shot, 
right? Was we love that book because of the yeah. horror elements to it. Yeah. But then again, that's something different. That's a completely different medium. It's a novel. That's a book. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think like I I always want to be careful when I talk about Star Wars feeling because then it can then it becomes a genre and it becomes a checklist or like it is a genre but it becomes a strict checklist and again as we've discussed that can either be lead to something really creative and unique or it can be a hindrance Mm -hmm. and it all depends on who's in charge (laughs) and what they do with it and so but I never want to say no to or I guess think poorly of episodes or films or books that lean heavily on other genres but then at the same time it's like well I want to see that I think at the same time it's fair to be like well this one didn't work as well like the Jaws one I I agree with you like that one didn't work as well but then I think the Hitchcock one in my opinion it did work yeah I think this goes back to my original discussion that we talked about in the very beginning of the show where I just am unsure if even putting something in a box is successful I think sometimes it can be. Yeah. Um, it can be. It's all and, about execution. Yeah. It really is. Yeah, exactly. And and like we were discussing like the the comparison between like Korean dramas and like films, the same thing with like Star Wars TV shows. They have the box of the show which has a strict timeline, a strict budget, a strict schedule, and they have to, you know, mid-season finale, season finale. You know, they have they have that kind of box. And so sometimes that leads to things that are really different like brain invaders that are really successful and then other times it doesn't necessarily things that aren't as successful as something like that Mm -hmm. so I think you're right it just it depends on the execution um and while you don't want to say that something has to be in a box that the box isn't always bad true true I mean yeah what's interesting about the genre of space opera is that it really does cover a lot of bases Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a different way than like fairy tale does. I think that fairy tale is a smaller sphere than space opera, which I think encompasses like a lot of moving pieces to make it space opera. When I think you really only need a couple of elements to make something fairy tale. Yeah. Well, even just even just the name space opera, <laughs> like space. The fact that it's like we're we're gonna take it off planet. Yeah, you know, like we're really we're really going far with this. Mm-hmm. Literally, <laughs> even that just makes it seem grander. Yeah. So, is fairy tale still your favorite genre? I think so. Yeah. I think those are my those are some of my favorite elements within Star Wars. I think Star Wars itself is space opera more than anything, but fairy tale. I think it's my favorite genre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that if someone was like, what is Star Wars? I think I'd lead with space opera. And then I'd say mm-hmm. it has elements of all genres, specifically fairy tale, fantasy, Western. I- I'd say all of those things. Mm-hmm. And yeah. sci-fi. And, you know, something that the James Cameron documentary brought up um, was that in – in the 70s and 80s, all sci-fi, and we didn't really dive into sci-fi because, to be honest, it doesn't really interest me as much as talking about these other topics. But mm-hmm. to say that here, Star Wars, if it can be under the genre of sci-fi, presented a, f- a future that wasn't filled with, like, edgy new technology. Instead, like, new meaning it 
was rusty. It was old. It was lived in. And that hadn't necessarily been done before on film with like sci-fi or space or anything like that. And I always thought that was really interesting because I think it's true. I think that like the lived in nature makes it less sci-fi because it doesn't glorify the future in progress, Mm -hmm. you know, in a way that much sci-fi does, yet it does have that feeling of sci-fi sometimes. Yeah, exactly. And I think for me, that's where it leans into that Western Mm -hmm. feel of gritty and lived in. Yep. And American. Yes. (laughs) The wild, wild west. (laughs) Wild, wild cantina of Tatooine. Yes. Yes. I can't believe we didn't talk about that in the Western section because that is so Western. The saloon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a literal saloon. Where even the droids have to like wait outside. Like there's that discrimination element that is pretty prevalent in Westerns as well. It's just interesting. There's a lot that is going on there. Yeah, A New Hope is a busy film. When oh you my really God. Use it really is. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much to analyze. And that's why we're still talking about it like 42 years later. 40 years later. Yeah. <laughs> Casually. <laughs> so is, is Fairy Tale your favorite? No, I think I, I think to be honest, I enjoy talking about Westerns the most. And I think it's a genre yeah. that more people need to get into because – and I think it's actually a genre that people don't realize they're interested in until they start thinking about movies that fall under this trope. Like, mm-hmm. I really do think Mad Max Fury Road is an excellent movie, maybe one of the best movies of the past 20 years, and most people need to see it. And it it kind of falls under this. And I don't know if, yeah. like, people even realize that. Or, like, yeah. eh, I don't know. There's There's a lot that goes into it. Like, I, I would love to talk about it more. And to actually, I'd love to take a class about Westerns. I think I'd be really interested in that. Yeah, like I said, it's definitely something that I haven't – I haven't watched enough Westerns, mm-hmm. but doing research for the show today, mm-hmm. I was like, I, I, want, I want to. <laughs> yeah. I think that like more than any other trilogy, though, I do think that the sequel trilogy is leaning deep into the fairy tale tropes and is very conscious of that fact. Mm-hmm. In a way that I think that the prequel and the original trilogy was conscious of those, but I think that the sequel trilogy has like this meta understanding of itself that the others did not yeah. necessarily, and therefore it is aware of those. Like it's it's falling back on those tropes, but subverting them at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's just interesting, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> which that will be that will be another like twenty twenty discussion <laughs> once we see how it all wraps. Cannot up. wait. Very ready. We're very close. <laughs> Too close. Not close enough. <laughs> okay. Well, is there anything else we want to say about space opera, Western, or fairy tale? There's so much to say, but no, I think that's it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, I think that is going to wrap up this week's episode then all about genre. Let us know what your favorite genre is. Um, is it fairy tale? Is it Western? Um, if you have a K-drama recommendation for us, a Western recommendation for us, or an opera recommendation for us, please send them our way. <laughs> you can send them to us on Twitter. Our handle is at SkytalkersPod, or our personal handles are at Caitlin Plusher is mine, and Charlotte's is at Clarity. You can also find us on iTunes, where you can leave us a review. We would love that so much. It makes us so happy and it helps other people find our show. Um, We are also on Patreon if you're interested in supporting us there where we had a commentary on the Yoda episodes that we talked about in our Yoda 1, Yoda 2, Yoda 3 series. So if you're interested, that's where you can find that. Yes. And I want to thank our amazing patrons, Jason, 
Bridget, Gina, Shelbo, Joey, James, Kathy, Gee, Kate, Nathan, Sam, Bailey, Eric, Kelly, Amy, Neil, Mary, Larry, James, Sarah, Susanna, Z, Cherie, Angela, Diana, Becca, Lynn, Katie, Courtney, Amy, Kelly, Jim, Suara, Heather, Brooklyn, Bradley, Candice, Kimma, Jalia, Matthew, Jam and Jedi, Jackson, Carrie, Jackson, Raphael, David, Ada, Liz, Christian, Nicole, Jonathan, Rachel, Aaron, Brooke, Rebecca, Kathy, Irabel, Kimberly, Ewan, Donnie, Vundacast Productions, Christian, Adam, Megan, Courtney, Centara, Thomas, John, Megan, Kate, Matthew, Fernanda, Chell, Manny, David, Claudia, Kate, Lady Valkyrie, Jenny, Blessed Cheesemaker, Danny, Lumpararoo, Patrick, James, Hammy, From a Certain Point of View, The Dorky Diva Show, Megan, Stewart, Kyle, Jennifer, Kels, Chastity, Aliyah, Travis, Katie, Alyssa, Rebecca, Delaney, Angela, Ali, Natalia, Daz, Serene, Shireen, Molly, Claire, Brad, Unspeakable, Caitlin, Rebecca, Helly, Scott, BJ, Casey, Lauren, Tom, Edith, Connie, Robbie, Kirsty, The Clashing Sabres Podcast, and Chuck. Thank you all so much for supporting us. And I also want to say a big thank you to everyone who commented about our Yoda series. And we didn't mention that at the top of the show, but yeah. we got so many great, so much great feedback from that. And I'm glad that you guys enjoyed it. So thank you for listening. Yeah. The Yoda series has turned out to be one of my favorites. I know. It's so weird. <laughs> so I really, I really enjoyed it. So like Charles said, thank you guys. And uh, thank you to our Patreons as well. And until next time, may the force be with you. The force be with you. Sky Talkers is a member of the Star Wars Escape Pods Network. Explore more great content and get to know our sister shows at WeAreEscapePods.com and on Twitter at WeAreEscapePods. The Star Wars Escape Pods Network, promoting positivity in fandom.